The Future of Smart, a project of Grantmakers for Education, will explore ideas at the intersection of education, equity, and philanthropy that point us towards a radical re-envisioning of our education system. We'll hear from those working at the edge of what's possible and explore what it means to support transformative change for young people and their communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Smart podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olka Joshi Hansen, Chief Program Officer of EdFunders, author of the book, The Future of Smart, and your host. Many education foundations today are talking about doing their work differently, about shifting power, exploring participatory grant making, changing the grant making process by introducing new kinds of applications and reporting requirements, or developing new ways to measure impact. But sometimes I come across a foundation working in an entirely different way, a system that reflects holistic Indigenous principles and ways of being, rather than tweaking conventional philanthropic approaches here and there. The St. Croix Foundation is a 31-year-old hybrid foundation founded after Hurricane Hugo devastated the Virgin Islands. At the time, U.S. philanthropic efforts were focused on South Carolina, where Hugo eventually landed. The island of St. Croix wasn't home to many high net worth donors, the social needs were steep, and the place was geographically isolated. As our guest, Deanna James, president of the St. Croix Foundation, put it, the founders were trying to launch a community foundation in a colonial landscape. This demanded that they think more radically. The standard formula for how to launch a community foundation didn't apply. Most community foundations are classified as public charities, which means that unlike private foundations, they fundraise aggressively for their endowment and programs and become a container for financial resources within a community. The community foundation determines how they disperse those resources. And for context, on average, foundations donate only 5.5% of their assets to charity each year, just above the 5% required by law. On the island of St. Croix, a traditional community foundation structure would have meant that every dollar raised from a limited donor pool for its endowment or work would be taking away from what another nonprofit doing really important work could raise. So they decided to structure themselves as a hybrid foundation, raising some money and giving grants, but also running their own programs. They also became a fiscal sponsor for other organizations, enabling those nonprofits to raise money through federal grants from local and corporate donors. And since most of these small organizations don't have large staff or human resources, the foundation staff could support them in building organizational systems and structures. Over time, as they grow and evolve, these small organizations are empowered to step into their own nonprofit status as much stronger, sustainable organizations. The St. Croix Foundation has done this for more than 250 nonprofits in the Virgin Islands so far. Beyond the novelty of its structure and mission, though, the St. Croix Foundation's story highlights the differences between philanthropic work that reflects more holistic indigenous values versus those birthed out of a Cartesian Newtonian approach. These dichotomous worldviews lead us to very different kinds of engagement with each other and with our work as we'll be seeing throughout this season of the Future of Smart podcast. The Cartesian-Newtonian worldview values linearity, smoothness, and efficiency. It's driven by a scarcity mentality, and these are the guiding values of any system developed from this point of view. In our education system, this is translated into the factory model of education, in which success and even intelligence are limited resources. This is why it feels so important to sort and rank students according to measurable performance against specific sets of expectations. Systems like this assume that human development and learning are linear and uniformly paced, that work and order must be imposed by teachers onto students, that we can draw a line from external accountability to individual actors within the education system. So, for example, if we incentivize students and educators to do well through test-based accountability, they'll get better. Holistic indigenous systems work more like ecologies and less like factories. Their changes and processes are nonlinear and dynamic. 
the patterns of behavior and relationship within them tend to recur at different levels of the system. And each individual part of the system has what it needs to operate independently, even as it's attuned to the needs of the whole. An educational system grounded in this approach accepts that students learn and grow in different ways. It ensures that the relationships and dynamics between young people and teachers are similar to the dynamics between the adults in that system. It provides learning and growth opportunities for adults that model what they should be giving to students. This kind of system allows each student to progress on their path even as they learn with and from others inside of their community. Conventional philanthropy also tends to operate on a scarcity mindset. There are limited dollars, and only a fraction of worthy organizations can receive support from that pool. Foundations craft theories of change that lead to narrow areas of giving, like early childhood, K-12, or post-secondary. Funding is time-limited and contingent on certain outputs during that time. The incentive is for each nonprofit to carve out a unique program that justifies its existence and to constantly scale and increase impact, expanding and touching more lives with each new program or intervention. A humanistic approach to philanthropy is different, as we'll hear in this conversation. Deanna uses terms like abundance, relationship, in this together, and collective a lot. It struck me that she didn't hold herself in this conversation as an expert so much as an essential member of a collective. We often hear the term proximate as a way to point to how funders can become closer to communities they serve. As you'll hear, Deanna goes beyond proximity, which after all still implies a separation, and towards belonging, immersion, being part of the work shaping relationships and actions by her very presence rather than being the steward of some externally derived theory of change. The Foundation's work has evolved and emerged over the last 10 years, and it builds on long-standing relationships among actors in St. Croix's larger ecosystem. The organic partnerships among grantees enables programs to touch many more areas of community life and respond to far more diverse needs than any one organization could have managed alone. Join me in learning more about the Foundation's journey in learning with our guest, Deanna James, president of the St. Croix Foundation. Welcome, Deanna. Thanks for joining me today. Olka, thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm really excited about the conversation today. Thanks. So I want to start where we always try and start, which is really with you as a person um, and our personal journeys, because they so often um, influence what we choose to do and why we're passionate about it. So tell, tell me a little bit more about your own personal journey, how you got to this position and why you're passionate about the work that you're doing today. So, yeah, so I am, I was born and raised in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And so um, I think the geopolitical kind of realities of, you know, being raised in a, a colony of the U.S. Um, framed a lot of how I think about the world. Um, I like to say sometimes that I fell into philanthropy, but then I have a friend who um, she argues that, you know, people who are born to be revolutionaries, um, they find their way to this work. And I think that, you know, when I reflect back on, you know, the journey um, before philanthropy, I like I, I think I was always destined to be here and to do this, uh, this kind of work and the way in which I work. Um, and I feel like I'm a radical, um, always seeking to push the envelope. And, and that I think was something that was um, innate for me um, growing up in this context of, you know, predominantly Black uh, community um, living under the umbrella of uh, American colonization. And so um, that I think informs a lot of how we work at the foundation under my leadership. I'm looking forward to digging into that. But during earlier episodes, we've had guests who've talked about how people's worldview, right, the, mm -hmm. the context in which they grow up influences their, influences their thinking about mm -hmm. who we are as people, who children are, what the purpose of education is, how we engage in that as community. Mm -hmm. I've never mm -hmm. been to St. Croix, uh, but I'd love it if you could speak to the answers your community might have um, to some of those questions and how that's informed kind of, you know, your, your outlook on the work. Yeah, so um, 
I think one of the things that's most interesting growing up in the Caribbean, despite the fact that yes, I'm I'm a black woman, I am American, um, I also grew up as a majority. So I think that that has, in so many ways, uh, shaped my consciousness about who I am and how I sit in the world, um, how I sit in this work. You know, when we talk about equity, some people. Uh, think about equity from like a theoretical, you know, lens. And for us, it's, it's just real. It's like, it's part of our, our day to day existence. And reality is that, you know, we live in inequity all day, every day. And so equity is very personal to us, um, to a lot of people that have been raised under, um, you know, this, uh, colonization, umbrella that um, the U.S., you know, we, we are very tenderly referred to as a territory. <laughs> but the reality is we are a colony. We cannot vote. Um, the status that we live under was uh, determined solely based on race and the belief that uh, people who were not white um, did not have the um, the intellectual capacity to to be uh, able to uh, become full citizens of the U.S. And so that is, um, that's part of our story. And I think that frames for those of us who are doing this kind of work that that really informs, I think, how we think about equity and how we think about the way that we are pushing for, for um, you know, a place at the table. Mm. We had a workshop at Grantmakers for Education with Milagros Phillips, um, who is also, she grew up um, in the Caribbean, and she talked about, you know, the abundance mentality that exists mm -hmm. in sort of warm mm -hmm. climates. And I think she was pointing, you know, to where she grew yes. up. And and there is something to that, right? And I, mm -hmm. I think about it as like the worldview that has come to dominate, which is more modern, Western um, has this scarcity mentality and frame 100%. that I think harms all of us so that even though you yep. may feel like you live in wealth and you live with privilege, mm -hmm. there's a way in mm -hmm. which you're disconnected from who you are and your connection to others, which is a state of impoverishment, mm -hmm. right? And yes. uh, yeah. It is. I mean, we we, we host a, a, a huge food festival um, as our, our main fundraiser. And the theme that we've chosen for the last several years was is just simple abundance. Um, mm -hmm. That, yeah, we may not have a lot, but in so many ways, when you think about the crises that we've had to face over the years, um, we've weathered a lot of those storms better than I think folks in New York City would weather those storms because of like the ties that we've been able to create. And, you know, we still live in the village. You know, I think that that's part of like what makes... Um, life much more peaceful for us is that we, you know, we almost everyone here grows some form of fruit or vegetable in their, you know, backyard. And so we don't think of the world from, a, we don't see the world from a perspective of scarcity. Like there is abundance, you know, I have a neighbor who has the most amazing mango tree and Every year around June, um, she comes to the yard and comes with a big bag of mangoes and hands them. And I, you know, I, I call my sister in the States and I laugh, like, how much did you spend on a mango today? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so there's like this, um, there's just a different perspective. And, you know, we have the ocean around us. I always say like we have like all these um, assets around us that like we know that we will always eat, you know, as long as the, the ocean is clean. Um, we know that, you know, I always say that even if I lost everything, I have a, a huge family and network of, of support that, you know, I know I could lean on. Um, and so I think that that really has framed uh, a prosperity sort of like, you know, mindset for not, not just me, but a lot of people on this island. And one of the really like unique things about St. Croix and that, you know, we have by every measure we are um, economically fragile. Um, and yet we have one of the highest home ownership um, hmm. rates in the nation, um, partly because people help each other build homes, you know, like people mm. like, you know, and, and many of those people own homes without like a mortgage. Um, so there's just like there is I think there's a different framework because of of the fact that we don't have a lot. And because we are isolated, we found other ways to to create abundant and prosperous lives than just money. 
that's a great segue into the history of the St. Croix Foundation, because it really is unique. Um, <laughs> my understanding is that from the time it began in the 1990s, it's tried to be very distinctive in how mm-hmm. it's approached its work, particularly compared to how we tend to think about foundations mm-hmm. and philanthropy. So could you tell our listeners a bit of the backstory of the foundation? Sure. So we are a 31-year-old hybrid uh, foundation that was founded on the heels of Hurricane Hugo. And that's like a really interesting, um, you know, uh, historical um, point for us because um, our founders made the decision to launch the foundation exactly a year after Hurricane Hugo. We were, um, the island of St. Croix in particular was almost leveled after Hugo. The reality is was we didn't have a significant number of high net worth donors. We didn't have a, a seed donor that would, you know, offer us an endowment, uh, at least the, you know, the seed gift for an endowment. Um, we had incredibly steep social needs, um, exacerbated by you know, geographic isolation. We had no national philanthropic networks to lean on. Um, and then we had zero like federal voting power. <laughs> and so that, you know, that was the landscape that they were trying to, to launch a community foundation. And they rooted everything about how this organization evolved in a deep commitment to nonprofits. Because at the time of the hurricane, our local government was basically on its ground. Like there was there was no almost no infrastructure. So our government agencies were were basically defunct. Um, federal government was trying to support the territory to the best of their ability, but our, our nonprofits were like the frontline soldiers. They were the ones that were supporting community in the most um, important and meaningful ways. And so our our founders prioritized nonprofits, and then like. By making that decision to prioritize nonprofits, they then made this other really equity-centered um, pledge, which said that if we really care about nonprofits, then we can't compete with them. And so um, how we think about operational solvency has to be different because we live in this really tiny little village um, with a scarce number of like scarce amount of resources and particular donor resources. And so that, of course, that decision then informs so many other decisions about like, well, how do you, you know, think about operational solvency if you're not like focused on building an endowment um, and amassing and hoarding resources? And then the other decision that they made, which is, I think, one of the things that makes us really distinctive is that they thought to themselves, well, we can um, feed our nonprofits and feed them for a day, or we can teach them to fish and feed them for a lifetime. And so they just decided to become fiscal sponsors and to really help most of our nonprofits at the time were really, really low capacity, under-resourced organizations doing big things. And so um, serving as a fiscal sponsor allowed them to have much greater reach, much uh, wider bandwidth um, serving under the foundation's 501c3 umbrella. That's like, it's just been the single most important role that the foundation has played. And we've served in that capacity for over 250 nonprofits in the Virgin Islands. Oh, wow. When I stepped into this role seven years ago, I really spent time looking at our originating documents and looking at board minutes and listening to the voice of my, of our founders, many of whom are not here anymore, um, about what they were thinking. And they were having these really deep, like meaningful conversations about like how to grow this organization, how to buck the system, how to sort of reject the formula and still be a legitimate community foundation Um you know, sort of moving in a different, uh, different path. And so that was like that, that has been a, a really important part of my journey is sort of reconciling, you know, the, the, the formula, you know, the, the way in which community philanthropy has, has evolved with how we have evolved as an organization. And I, you know, I say all the time that we're horrible fundraisers because, <laughs> Because how conscious we are, like are those nonprofits, they they're like our babies. They sit underneath us. We are we are 
we exist to serve them and to support them and to help them grow. And so there's a high level of accountability that comes with that, that we can't sort of like look away from. It's just, it's part of our DNA now. And so um, I think that's just one of the ways that we are absolutely distinctive. And I can tell you that the field of philanthropy, so most of our peers do not, you know, recognize us as a bona fide community foundation because we mm-hmm. have rejected the endowment and building an endowment because we don't have like this huge corpus. Um, we have donor advised funds. We actually uh, struggle with the power that donors hold um, in this work. And I think it's a conversation that the field has not ever effectively, you know, uh, addressed or, you know, faced head on. And so we, we talk about it often that, you know, power is a really important force in this work and where power sits is really important if you are truly committed to equity and if you are truly committed to community. And so we, we are always interrogating our own internal systems and our policies and, and processes to make sure that we are living equity and not just leading equity. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when you ask most foundations about their assets, they, they think about or they talk about their corpus and the mm-hmm. money that they give away, or more mm-hmm. importantly, to your point, don't give away. Um, how do you think about your assets and how have you leveraged them in ways that are really unique as a result? So we are grant makers. Um, and I can, I can say that one of the first national foundations that can, came to you know check in on us was Ford Foundation, which is, I think, within the first two years or year of our um, inception. Ford came and they offered us a multi-year grant seed funding to help us um, build new competencies around being good, quote-unquote, grant makers. One of the first grants was actually just one of the more, most successful grants that we've ever um, awarded, and that was to an organization that later went on to become the first AIDS outreach organizations in the Caribbean. Great grant, and the board sat back and like, well, that was awesome. However, um, now what? You know, um, so few of the nonprofits in our community were even ready to take advantage of the grants that we could have awarded. And we were like, well, how do you like, who are we going to be granting to if we start building this corpus with the sole purpose of awarding grants? Um, and so we, um, we have like sort of, uh, sort of built muscle around this sort of dual role that we play as like I said, we're a hybrid, we do operating um, work as a, you know, running our own programs and uh, providing direct services, and then as a grant maker, but really like truly strategic grants that we know um, are going to have like sustained impact. And so, the the whole point of like you know building assets for you know perpetuity <laughs> um, is not necessarily a relevant sort of like way of thinking about the work that we do right now. So we, you know, we, we do have donor advice funds. We do do grant making, but more often than not, we are operators. We, we, um, you know, administer our own programs and we do so in close partnership with our nonprofits. So I'm sure you could tell me lots of different stories about the programs mm-hmm. you operate, but I'm interested in one that I remember you mentioning, mm-hmm. which was a consortium of nonprofits that you yes. you pulled together. Tell us a little yes. bit about that story, because I think it has yes. a through line for many, many years up, up yes. until more recently. It changed our organization. So we we started out with really close relationships with nonprofits because of our fiscal sponsorship uh, role. But in... 20, so there are a lot of things that kind of informed this decision. Um, GFB actually is at the center of um, some of that decision making. And that was um, a, a conversation that we had had, we had sat in with Pazi Salberg and he was, you know, talking about um, equity. And I remember like sitting and I just had like a moment of of just clarity and enlightenment, <laughs> listening to him talk about equity. He was like, you know, we define equity really simply in Finland. It's those with the least get the most hard stuff. And I was like, okay, well, that's, that's not how I've defined equity. Um, I don't think that's how America defines equity. <laughs> um, 
particularly in education. And um, we shifted, so we shifted all of our, our work in education at that time from programming and supporting programs to focusing on policy and then like starting this new work around systems and not really understanding like what is this system that we were trying to build equity around? And we were like, we've got to pull our nonprofits together in a much more intentional way than just serving as a fiscal sponsor. And so we thought, well, we have these relationships. So let's pull everybody together and let's start really talking about how do we work together to leverage the resources we have, leverage the knowledge that we have to support our community through this crisis. So we had like four sectors. We had arts and culture, youth and education, health and human services, and then the environs built in natural environment. And we just had everybody sit together. I mean, we did a lot of things wrong <laughs> in that process that we had to learn from, which was to even begin talking about money before we built trust. Um, but we sat for a year. We literally just created a safe space for organizations to come together and to just get to know each other. And what we didn't fully understand at the time um, was that we were all becoming systems thinkers because we were all kind of like starting to understand each other's work, um, the intersections of each other's work with our own work. Um, and then this crisis happened, which was 2017 uh, hurricanes Irma and Maria back-to-back -back, category five hurricanes and then it was like the bond was sealed the foundation our founders had, had uh, solarized our, our building and buried our utilities and so our offices were up and running within a couple of of days after the storm and then because we had started building this coalition you know people started hearing how like, oh, the foundation's up and running and we had like 20 30 bodies in our office for two months and it was I can't express how much of a shift happened in my life, in my work, um, in the work of all of these organizations, because we sat in the same space as as um, connected and um, collaborative forces in the community at a time when our community needed most. So no decision was made by any organization unless like we were all sitting there helping them walk through and work through um, how to solve these problems. And I can say without fear of contradiction that every single investment that we have made since we started the consortium has been successful. And it's mm -hmm. been successful because all the voices are at the table. All the rep, the, the populations, vulnerable populations that are represented by those organizations are sitting in the room. Um, they have a, a voice in the circle. And so we think in systems now, like, you know, we're not talking about food, but we're also thinking about arts and we're talking about the environment, but thinking about health and human services and youth and education, like nothing happens in isolation anymore. And so the work that we're doing specifically around education has been just transformed because we don't see things um, in isolation anymore. We don't see things in the silo the, the siloed ways that we used to see them before we built this co this consortium of nonprofits so let me give you an example of what came out of like you know all these people working together um and supporting our community through crisis and that was our solar supported uh community center initiative we were thinking like how do we provide some you know support to our young people um, that were like most of our students were out of school for almost a year after the hurricane. Nobody knew that because everybody was focused on Puerto Rico where Maria hit after it hit us. Um, but our kids like spent almost a year, uh, out of school and we were thinking how to support our kids, how to support their families, um, Everyone is sitting in the room. Our, our environmental sector leaders are sitting in the room. Our We had uh, food sovereignty and food security people sitting in the room. Um, we had our education and uh, youth uh, sector sitting in the room, so our, our Boys and Girls Club uh, folks. And we were like, oh, well, you know, everyone, like so many people didn't have electricity for like five, sometimes six months. Uh, people went without electricity and we were... Like, okay, so we've got to think through this. Like, how do we 
invest in something that is like so deeply intersected in all these like crisis points in our community. And so we were like, oh, well, we need, wouldn't it be great to solarize like a community center? And, you know, particularly one that supports uh, our young people. So we were thinking the Caribbean Center for Boys and Girls, which is uh, formerly our, our Boys and Girls Club. Um, there was another uh, facility that was supporting children and providing after school. Well, it was, <laughs> it was just youth support system because they weren't in school. Um, and so we, we had this conversation and then we were like, oh, that would be great. You know, what would be great is that while we're supporting while we're solarizing, we should like get a couple of kids and like, like teach them to like, you know, you know what the process of, of installing a solar system looks like. And just in a passing conversation, Department of Labor had staff that was in our office at that time also. And they're like, well, you know, we have money for workforce development. Like, could you like create a program, like a real program from this? And we're like, well, that wasn't our plan, but okay, we can do that. And so we, um, we got like a significant amount of money from our local department of labor for workforce development. We reached out to several of the vocational uh, school instructors who were not working. Um, and we asked them if they would, you know, be part of, there was an intensive six months training program. We worked with the department of labor to identify opportunity youth. So those were youth. Uh, most of them had, had already either um, dropped out of school or had graduated, but were basically not employed and not really doing anything productive in their lives at that time. And we identified those youth and we, we worked with them every day, all day to get them certified. They went through an NCCER, a certification program, got their solar installer certification. Um, and then we brought solar uh, companies in to work with them to provide them with life life skills and uh, professional development um, training, and then when we were done with that program, which was right at the start of the pandemic, we were like, "Oh my God, what do we do? Like, what happens next?" Every single one of those young people, at a time when people were losing jobs, got hired full time. Um. And so it was like this, we solarized the Caribbean Center for Boys and Girls. It was one of the spaces that as schools were, you know, in virtual learning, there was that one place that kids could play outdoors and be, you know, in a safe space. And so it was like all these connections that were made because all the right voices were sitting in the room, helping us to think through what like an investment around children would look like in this series of crises that we were dealing with as a community. We got these container farm stands, we put them in all these remote, vulnerable communities. And then um, our students were like, well, why don't we solarize them? And so our students then solarized um, the container farm stands are fully solarized, um, Wi-Fi, have uh, water buffaloes. And once again, we launched that project we awarded those container farm stands right at the beginning of the pandemic. And throughout the pandemic, people were able to have access to clean food, fresh, clean food in a safe way. Um, when people were concerned about going into grocery stores, um, we worked with our farmers to support communities that included the, the community where the Caribbean Center for Boys and Girls was to ensure that that families, you know, could have food. And so all of it was like every single project at that time was just connected. Mm -hmm. um, every single priority area that we had established from the environment to arts and culture and how we decorated those um, farm tiendas, all of it, all of our partners came together to, to create something that like really supported communities at their, you know, greatest time of need. I want to talk about theories of change, but before we do, I want to reflect on something. When a disaster happens, we often try to bring people together and say, okay, now let's work together. But in your case, there was kind of a tilling of the soil in your ecosystem, right? There was systems level work that you'd been doing before the disaster formalized this coalition. 
I'm curious, what were the bumps? I mean, what were the things that people had to get over in order to build these relationships that would allow them to work together? I think the the magic, the secret sauce in this work, and we didn't, like I said, it's like a lot of it is in, you know, retrospect. Right. It was time. Like we actually like gave the process time. We we had a lot of kind of storming in the beginning. Um, and that storming was the result of a lack of trust and a lack of like real deep like connected relationships. And so what we committed to, to our partners was that we would hold the space. We would hold the space. We would hold it steady. We would hold them accountable to sit in the space. Um, And we learned very quickly, don't talk about money. (laughs) Don't talk about money until, you know, we have like sufficient relationships and trust. Um, And what was really interesting is that we all like, were really polite and it was a very like, you know, courteous, like, you know, space that we all worked in before the consortium. So I think we had assumptions that, okay, when we get together, it's going to be, you know, love and peaches and cream. And it was not. Um, and so we, what we did is we stepped back. And I think that's like another powerful lesson for us as an organization is that we had to learn to get the heck out of the way. Like, you know, philanthropy always feels like we're going to figure out, like, we're going to crack the code. We're going to be the ones to come in with the bright idea that's going to fix things. And we learned to just step out of the way, to hold steady our fundamental role in community, which is to be a convener and to be a facilitator. And to be, to honor that. And so we just created the space and we like, you know, one of my, my, my founding board members, when, you know, I brought the idea to her, we're going to you know build this thing and we're going to bring these organizations together. She said, listen, like, let me give you one word of caution. Don't assume that people know what collaboration means. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So that's like an important like thing to, to think about. And so we actually spent that year training around collaboration, like really teaching people. We did art of hosting uh, workshops. We brought like other members of the community into the process. We, um, it was like, we, we, we built, we built a new version of community um, through this, this, you know, space that we were creating and we're still creating it um, as time goes by. Um, but we dedicated the time. And I think that's sometimes the, the one thing, the one commodity that community philanthropy does not dedicate um, enough investment in. And that is around is it's it's time. It's like we didn't really even have an agenda. We took the agenda off the table after the, the third meeting. We were like, OK, we are just going to learn how to get along and learn how to respect what each other is doing and learn what each other is doing. And that's what we did every Almost every meeting in the beginning was held at a different nonprofit site. So organizations got to see in you know real time what like their 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 peers were were doing and where they, you know, where their lived experiences were. And so that was like, I think those were the the lessons that when we look back, we're like, those were like we really did not go in there with uh, you know, this belief that we had the answer and we knew we were building something really spectacular. We just were like, we're, we're in learning mode. We're students in this process. And I think that was the, the greatest lesson that we took away from the early part of the, the consortium. And how, if at all, did issues of race, conversations about race and power play into this? Okay, that, that started immediately. So that was another. <laughs> um, so despite the fact that the Virgin Isles is predominantly Black, 76, 75% Black and, and Hispanic, um, we are in our sector, probably one of the most diverse spaces in community. Um, so when we got together, it was very evident. We kind of look like the United Nations. And I think one of the things I've talked to you about this, Wilka, is that we, we talk about race very openly. And I think part of that is because we, we as people of color live as majority like race is not a taboo subject for us. We, we, we talk very openly. We have 
there are a lot of of people of different races that live on the island and race issues come up very often and like, you know, community tackles them. Um, sometimes it can get, you know, there's a lot of energy around it and sometimes, oftentimes not. And so as we started talking about equity, and then there was maybe like one day where we were polite, everybody was polite with each other. And then after that, it was just, we had to deal with it. I mean, that, that first year, that was like a lot of the conversations we were having. Um, so, and of course, um, the launch of the consortium kind of dovetailed with um, Trump administration coming into office. And so, and what that would mean for us as a territory without voting power. And, you know, um, we had to have, like, we had to tackle some really tough issues very early on. And um, I can tell you that uh, one of the, the ways in which we have grown as, as a, as a unit is that um, two years ago, we worked together to build a positioning statement on race and equity. And we asked all of the organizations in our consortium to have their boards um, approve that as sort of their guiding principles for how they talk about how they, um, they, they govern issues of, of race and equity in their work. So we, it, it is such a huge part of, of what we do. We start, we have a, a convening um, every year. We've had a convening and the um, convenings always start with one of our, our leaders, our, our nonprofit leaders, who's the head of our, our Landmarks Society. She's an a griot, she's a historian. Um, she starts with a, a, a sort of, homage, giving homage to ancestors, the ancestors. <laughs> and so we, we, we honor that we, we bring that invite that into the space into the conversation all the time. And so I think it's just, I, I'm, we've had people that come from the States, the national partners that come down and they're like, well, I, I don't know if I've ever been a part of a conversation about race and equity, like I have here in the Virgin Islands, where it really is about humanity. Um, and I think that that's one of the um, great, you know, outcomes of just being really, really honest and transparent and laying it all on the table from the beginning. I mean, I'm curious. I imagine a lot mm -hmm. of our listeners are white leaders. Mm -hmm. um, what was the experience of that, if you if you can speak to it, of the white people in the space? I think there's a sensitivity that comes with being um, part of an oppressed group in the world. Um, so there's, I think there's a, a consciousness that um, has been nurtured in people of color around how we show up when it, you know, comes to issues of race. Um, we've had a white uh, national partners that came down and um, we were getting ready to sort of dive into a conversation and, you know, we kind of laid it on the table and prepped everybody that, you know, this might be a, you know, uncomfortable conversation. And one of our, our white um, partners uh, from the state said, well, well, you know, why does the conversation have to be uncomfortable? Why can't it be a comfortable conversation? And um, one of our, our your local leaders like held her hand and said, you're going to be OK. Like you'll, you're safe. This is a safe space. We're going to walk through this this you know exercise together. And um, what was really powerful is that as she was on the plane sort of heading back to the states, um, she wrote me this really amazing um, message that said that she had never been in such a safe space um, and had such an honest conversation about race um, than she had experienced with us. And in a room full, like a really diverse room full of, of, of partners. So we had a lot of white partners. And, you know, the, the most of the partners that work on the island that work, they're, they're doing black serving work. They're serving predominantly black populations. They've made a choice to come to a community that is predominantly black. Um, they've had to learn really important, powerful lessons about how to navigate living in a community like this. Um, and so like, you know, we say here, like, you know, St. Croix is not for everybody and everybody is not for St. Croix. Um, and at the end of the day, I think the folks that are truly committed to the way that we're thinking about uh, equity, um, around this work are the, the folks that stay at the table. And so um, I think everybody's all in. 
And it just, it makes me curious, right? You've already mm -hmm. described that the context of where you live has mm -hmm. enabled people to develop these muscles and these awareness. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts about how we translate that or what we learn from that in doing the work in the U.S., where that is not the case, that is not the way in which the culture holds us. And, you know, my one of my fears, and I think it's shared by a lot of people, is that in this moment, everyone is talking about, you know, equity, and we start our meetings, you know, saying mm -hmm. we're on the land of, you know, these and these people, or we talk about relationships. And yet, and I don't want to say it's performative, because I think in many cases, people are coming to it with really good intention, and yet it's not. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that? Yes, I do, actually. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, so I don't think all of it is sincere. And what I say is that if you're not living equity, you cannot lead equity, period. Like that is it. Like you have to, you have to live it. If when you go home, when you go in that voting booth, if your decisions are not rooted, your personal decisions are not rooted around a commitment to equity, you cannot lead equity. And that is the raw, honest truth. Um, and so that for me is like, I think the test of this work that we're leading that we like, we have to live it. It has to be, you know, um, Tuesday, who's our, our consultant, our systems change consultant, um, she always says, you know, what if equity was um, our state of being? Like it was just who we are. Like what would the world look like? What would the work look like? Um, and I think like that's such a, a guiding principle for all of us. Um, and so I think that, you know, one of the other things that Tuesdays kind of like helped us think through is that we keep trying to fix things, right? We keep trying to, um, like I said, crack the code, figure this out. And we're going to like sit in a boardroom and like, we're going to find the right, you know, trigger point that's going to like, you know, radically shift systems. The reality is that our systems in America are a reflection of the people who live in America. Like our systems are, and many of them, particularly in education, are rooted in inequity. They just are. And so if we're not trying to change the system, we're trying to change the impact the system has, the inequitable system has on the lives of people. I say stop, just stop, <laughs> stop. It's the reason that the amount of money, like billions of dollars that have been invested in education have not resulted in the kinds of outcomes that we should be seeing is because the fundamental system that undergirds our educational, like, you know, infrastructure is not based or grounded or rooted in a commitment to equity. And so if we as a field are not comfortable about focusing on policy, policy reform and using our power and our money to move policies that will ensure equity for underserved, vulnerable, marginalized populations in America, then like, I guess we're doing what we do to make ourselves feel good. Like, I mean, we're doing something. And that's to me, um, part of why this work that we're doing, like really trying to teach ourselves to think differently about how do you change um, improve the lived experiences of people from this, this work in philanthropy. And I think the bottom line for us is that people change and people, people fix their own problems. People have the, the ability to find the answer to their own problems. And what we need to do is to build muscle around nurturing really deep, meaningful relationships so that people can sit in a room and figure it out for themselves. And I think that's, I mean, that's like a changes how you think about all the money you're sitting on, right? How you're using and you're going to deploy all that money. If you're really just facilitating conversations and, you know, 
sitting in a space of like confidence that those conversations will lead to some solutions that people will have agency around without you. <laughs> um, and that is, um, I think that's like a lot of the work that has to be done in our field. Like, I don't think like we keep trying to invest in change and to, you know, you know, sort of move systems from sitting in these boardrooms and really and truly that's not how, like just in our experience, that's not how cha real change happens. Mm. But it is, right? I appreciate you using this this metaphor of muscles because our dominant worldview is what, again, it's scarce. It's me against the world. It's things are top down, right? There are all these values that we build muscles around and then get into leadership. And what you're describing is a very different way of existing in the world. And when you exist in it, I think you can see different possibilities, but it's really hard when you're trying to think in that way, but are still rooted with your old muscles to actually see it, which is why I think it's so scary, right, for so many folks to step into it. You know, there's a lot of talk about diversifying leadership in philanthropy, in nonprofits. I don't know that skin color, race, culture alone tell us which kind of worldview or perspective you bring to it. And I also know you stepped into this role as the first Black female leader of, of, um, of the foundation. Tell us a little bit about your own experience and how that has you thinking about our need for diversifying, bringing new people into the f sector, philanthropy and nonprofit, and what do we have to do to make them successful or help them be successful? Yeah, so I was... Um uh, my predecessor was a white man from Maine. That's what I joke about um, him. And um, he served the foundation for 22 years. I did not know that I would become the first black native Virgin Islander to lead a community philanthropy mm -hmm. in the Virgin Islands. But I knew it would be difficult. Um, the reality was that almost all of our donors were white, almost all of our donors were mature elderly men. Um, almost all of them were conservative. Um, and so I kind of steeled myself for what I expected to be, you know, the, you know, a, a really difficult road for me. We lost, you know, just real talk, lost donors. Um, and I was like, okay, I get why <laughs> there's never been a person of color in this role. Um, we, but concurrent with that, I became part of a really amazing national network of black leaders in philanthropy. And they became champions of ours. And we got new donors that were real co-conspirators and really community minded and equity centered. And it was, um, so it was, it was an uphill battle. It continues to be an uphill battle, but um, my perspective as a person of color, as a woman, um, leading this work has um, really changed how the organization has evolved. And I think it's so important that, you know, organizations um, sort of walk the talk that if you're committed to equity and you're serving communities of color, you got to have people at the table <laughs> um, in your organization who can relate to the communities that you're trying to serve and support. Um, I think that um, the, the issue of race is such a, it's such a powerful issue. And the reality for me, what I've learned is that, you know, we think, that philanthropy is unique, that it, you know, within the hollowed walls, halls of, of philanthropy that somehow our systems look different <laughs> than the prevailing systems outside of philanthropy. But race and white supremacy, um, all those things show up in the, in the field as much as they exist outside the field. And I've, I've had to sit through, I wrote an article right after 
um, the lynching of George Floyd. I wrote an article. I was really just wrote it for my community, went a little further than my community, but I wrote it about race and philanthropy and what I've had to sit through. I've had to sit mm-hmm. through some of the most racist conversations with donors mm-hmm. um, over the course of my almost 20 years in philanthropy. I've had white colleagues sit in rooms with me and be like, oh my God, Deanna, I cannot believe that you had to hold your head up and listen to that. Um, And so like, I don't, I don't like, you know, I don't sugarcoat what like this work really looks like. Um, The raw sort of reality of, of philanthropy and what it means for high net worth people to in so many ways hold power within philanthropy hold power in terms of where money is being directed, hold power in terms of how much of the money is being directed, um, hold power in terms of who's sitting at the boardroom, um, you know, approving or disapproving, um, you know, equity agendas. Um, it's, it's, it's real. And I think I always say that there's so much work to be done within philanthropy before this field could have the kind of impact that I think it has the potential to have. Mm. Thank you. I really appreciate mm-hmm. you going there with me. Mm-hmm. Looking back, right, I imagine you you probably don't think you could have put together a PowerPoint presentation about your theory of change and all the things you're going to do and what comes out of it. And I can imagine a lot of people are going, well, how do you scale that? And somebody once said to me, as soon as you try and scale it, you rip the heart out of it because you don't let it be emergent. So yes. um, so that's it's just a great example of, of a, an emergent process. But let's talk about impact and measuring mm-hmm. impact, right? So nonprofits mm-hmm. are used to saying, well, what is our work? What did mm-hmm. we do? What do we get credit for? How does that play out in this kind of a, an approach, a philanthropic approach? So we've, we've invested money in uh, supporting our nonprofits and building capacity around data collection. Uh, like, Oka, when you asked me that question, I, I don't know how to answer it because I have yet to hear one single nonprofit ask that question hmm. or think in that way. Um, their piece of the collaboration is their piece of the collaboration and they measure their piece of it. There's not almost no ownership, like our Caribbean Center for Boys and Girls Club partners with our Caribbean Museum and Art Center um, that partners with uh, Fires Lit, which is a, a literature enrichment program. They all work together. They all build their programming together. They are so deeply committed to collaboration that I don't, I don't know how to even, I don't think they know how to think in terms of like what's mine and what's yours beyond the fact that yes, the students, you know, come from the students that come from the Caribbean Center for boys and girls that come to the Caribbean Center, they, you know, have, uh, you know, uh, data points they collect um, around the students that they are responsible for. Caribbean Center, once they get on their, their property, they provide, uh, you know, additional supports to those students. They count them, um, uh, for the piece of the programming that they are responsible for. It, there's, it, it is so deeply like the work that we, we did around nurturing relationships was so real um, that there is very little conversation about ownership of like impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and at the end of the day, these are like, these are our children. You know what I mean? This is like, we don't live apart from the, the people we're serving. Like they are, they, they belong to us. And so I think there's just a different um, consciousness around how, how impact is measured. Um, and the success when it's a collaboration is everybody's success. And they, like, organizations are now, they pride themselves on, you know, submitting proposals that are deeply, deeply collaborative. Um, and that, you know, the success of the program is contingent upon how, how intersected the organizations are and the the agendas that they've developed are. And so that for me is, I think, a, 
one of the, the things that I like, I, I hold most dear about like this work that we're doing is that there has been a shift in mindset. Um, and, and so, and it changes how we, you know, how we present the data, but it's like the data is just always beautiful when, when it's presented because it really is everybody working together for a common good. Mm. So as we end, I just want to bring this down, right? Because a lot Mm -hmm. of people here listening are going to be in the U.S. They're going to, some of them are going to be national. Some might be community Mm -hmm. foundations. But, you know, what advice would you have? I feel like lots of people now are talking about intersectionality and understanding Mm -hmm. that we can't operate in silos. We're hearing Mm -hmm. this term proximate and being proximate to the communities we serve. Mm -hmm. But as as they grapple with what it means to actually do that, I'm wondering what Mm -hmm. advice you know, you would offer to those who are earlier in this journey than you are now. So once again, Tuesday, I'm going to harken back to Tuesday <laughs> and her wisdom. Um, um, she says relationship is the resolution. And I just feel like that's the answer. Like, it just feels like that's the answer. Like, if you can nurture relationships, um, people will find the solution. And, and I think that's where like more investments need to be made. Um, we, we think about our, our role as a, as a community leader so differently now. Like we just, I, my, my bandwidth as an organization is exponentially larger because I do nothing alone. Mm-hmm. I go nowhere alone. <laughs> um, we just awarded a grant to one of our, our our sponsored projects and consortium members who um, did this amazing public art, massive public art uh, initiative in one of our, our high schools. And when I tell you the impact, the inspiration that that project, and it was just someone who's doing environmental justice work and um, arts and culture work like somehow having this massive impact on education. Hmm. Um, And what we did, we gave her like capacity because she's a a sponsored project of ours. She's a black woman. I don't even think she gets a full salary, um, doesn't have staff and led this massive project that had like the entire educational system in the Virgin Islands above a buzz because Hmm of her commitment to supporting children in the way that she knew how. Mm. And it like, so for me, it's like, I just, I tell people build the relationships, like the communities are so naturally resilient, particularly communities that are, are rural and underserved and marginalized. There's just, there's a genius that is oftentimes untapped because the funder comes in thinking that they have the answer and they know where to direct the resources. And like I say, I just think that if more of us decided to get out of the way, to to just facilitate and nurture those relationships and step out of the way, that the relationship would be the resolution. And I want to go back to that idea of like, we all live on an island, or you've said that to me in the past. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of that relationship seems like it does need to be built on whatever, Mm -hmm. however you define the island, which then Mm -hmm. suggests a slightly different role, perhaps for national funders, right? Around how do you think about the assets you bring, but Mm -hmm. doing it through investment in in the islands, right, that already exist. And these islands, like they do, they exist. I, I like, I, I spoke to a, a, a colleague at a foundation in Alabama. She lives on an island. There is no, like, <laughs> she. when I said that to her, she's like, yes, I live on an island. Mm-hmm. National philanthropy doesn't see me. I'm isolated. I serve a population in deep need. Um, and how I serve looks more like you mm-hmm. in the Virgin Islands than it looks like the foundation, you know, 40 miles down the road. Hmm. Um, and so I, 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 I just believe so many people are already existing in these villages. So much incredible leadership is being demonstrated in these spaces already. And I think what I would challenge the field to do is to find the St. Croix foundations, find the organizations that have, over the course of many years, nurture trust, 
with um, you know community stakeholders, particularly nonprofits, and to direct the investments there and get out of the way. And that for me would be the lesson to the field. I would like the field of philanthropy to, to consider blind spots like the Virgin Islands, to consider blind spots like the rural South, um, and indigenous uh, villages in America, um, to really consider that there's powerful work being done in these spaces that necessity has nurtured a very unique um, brand of, of, of invention and radical sort of uh, civic leadership. And I think that, um, that more light needs to be sh shown in those spaces and more investments need to be made in those, um, in those places. Well, I appreciate you helping to shine some light on that through sharing your story and for the work that you're leading and the way in which Thank you're you. doing it and showing up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Olga. Thanks for listening. The Future of Smart podcast is a project of Grantmakers for Education and is made possible through the support of our generous member sponsors. If you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and follow us on social media. You can find links to resources related to today's episode in the show notes. More episodes and events can be found at edfunders.org. To learn more about the future of smart, visit ulca.com, U-L-C-C-A.com.